This is part two of my chat with Mads Torgerson about C-Sharp 11. In part one, we covered new features in C-Sharp. We also talked about some features that didn't make it into the release and also community contributions. In this part, we address listener questions that we got from Twitter. I have a bunch of listener questions. We, we put up a tweet, uh, soliciting questions, and then I asked a few people. And I'm gonna start with some of the questions that came in from Twitter, and I apologize in advance if I butcher a person's name. First is from Sander Tenbrinke. What feature does Mads regret implementing the most? <laughs> I could dodge the question by saying I didn't implement any of them. <laughs> sure. But um, I, so the compiler team did that. But um, no, I I don't. So luckily, I haven't been around for all of C Sharp's existence. So there are some from before my time that I that we might, let's say we get back to talking about delegate types um, a little later. Um, but, um, you know, during my time, I think that definitely the way that we built the dynamic feature is one that I often bring up as, as uh, one where I have regrets. I was very much involved in the dynamic feature and we got several things wrong with it. It's a, it, you know, Language design-wise, in many ways, it's a beautiful feature. The way that dynamicness flows, it's just the right amount of viralness and so on. Beautiful. But a few things we didn't we we didn't get right about the future of the world. Pretty much, you know, the day we shipped dynamic um, was when smartphones came out, and the the long era of the machines that C sharp would run on always getting bigger and more powerful and performance problems being something that would just go away next year was over. Okay. And, and dynamic is a feature that is fairly heavy on the performance side. Um, another thing was that at that time we were trying very hard to, um, to get to good .NET versions of a couple of dynamic languages, Python and Ruby, potentially more down the line. We were really leaning into having, dynamic language runtime that um, could fully support and optimize and, and run well these um, these dynamic languages and interrupt super well with the existing static languages, including C-sharp. So we we leaned heavily into that. We actually had, I mean, they, we had very cool, quite efficient implementations of Python and um, and Ruby as well. But it wasn't to be. The, they didn't survive. As um, and and this this vision of the .NET family, including um, several dynamic languages as first class Microsoft supported languages, didn't pan out. And so a lot of the effort we put into the level of interoperability across to those was kind of wasted, and and led to more heavy clunky stuff in the way that we do dynamic, which we are sort of bound by compat and sheer engineering effort to just stick with forever. Next question comes from Ruben W. He would love to hear more about discriminated unions, both in terms of the challenges to get them designed and into the language, as well as language constructs that we might see to help them be useful. And in that regard, if there will be native option and results slash error types. That's a long ah. question. We need to probably need to break it up. So I'm going to ask you again. I know we've talked about it in the past. What are discriminated unions? 
So discriminated unions are to functional languages what class hierarchies are to object-oriented languages. Um, I mean, I'm, I'll probably get attacked from both sides for putting it that simply. But <laughs> they can send the, their letters to you. <laughs> yes, yeah, address them to to slash dev slash null. Um, <laughs> the uh, in the sense that they are the the core engine for expressing uh, the shapes of data types uh, that have multiple different, you know, that have multiple different shapes. Data types where a value can have multiple different shapes. In object-oriented programming, well, you do it by having a, a base type and some virtual members on there, and then you, you know, you inherit. And in a discriminated union world, in a functional world, you will you write a discriminated union saying it could be either this shape or this shape or this shape or this shape. So there's like a finite list of different shapes that it can have. And then you use, instead of using virtual dispatch, you typically use pattern matching in order that when you get a value, in order to see which of the shapes it has, well, you uh, use pattern matching and you take them one by one. Well, if it was that shape, then do this. If it was that shape, do that. So, um, And that's what discriminated unions are at the core. Um, and so a lot of people are asking us to add discriminated unions to c -sharp. But here's the problem. We already have inheritance. <laughs> and um, adding a whole like full-fledged alternative uh, mechanism for describing types that can have different shapes would be massive overkill, right? Now you have two languages in one. That's exactly the kind of thing we don't want. On the other hand, discriminated unions do have some advantages over classic inheritance. And so the trick here for us is to see which of those advantages are worthwhile enough that we can try to incorporate them into C Sharp in some way, way, shape, or form without bringing the whole thing in. And sort of essentially, if we can stitch them on, on top of what we already have, um, so that you don't like bifurcate the whole world, that would be much preferred. Some of those advantages are, well, the list of different shapes in a discriminated union is finite, which means that you, when you then go and do pattern matching or switching or something like that, you can have exhaustiveness. With a class, you can never or very rarely can you know how many derived classes are there. Some of them you might know about, they live somewhere else with an inter interface it's even worse you know there's like who knows who implements this interface so you can't write exhaustive code against an interface you can uh you can call virtual methods on it and hope they do something right but you can't sort of say well i've enumerated all the possibilities and i've dealt with everything a discriminated union you can so exhaustiveness really nice feature lots of people are asking for that another thing is that they tend to have really terse, beautiful syntax. And writing class hierarchies. So with discriminated unions, classically, you tend to talk about lines of code. And with and with uh, classic object-oriented, full-fledged hierarchies, you're talking pages of code. <laughs> and some of that is that you're sticking all the functionality in your classes. And, uh, and so there's a lot of you know um, statements, code in there, as well as the just shape of the data. But functional folks would argue, well, that's it's better to put that elsewhere and you know separate the concerns, describe the shapes concisely, and then they tend to have slightly bulky 
functions because they then have to deal with all the cases, all the different shapes in one fell swoop. Like, uh, whereas with virtual methods, that's that tends to be more modular. They tend to be slimmer and just do the thing, just do that one thing for this one shape. So pros and cons there, but um, we could certainly, and we have in many ways already been striving to get to where just the declaring of syntax, the, the syntax for declaring classes is more terse. Records are one take on that, but um, we could probably, we could probably do more when it comes to describing families of types that are um, that are in either this, that, or the other. You know, so there's syntactic benefits as well. And then finally, inheritance isn't always the most efficient way of doing things. So some people also ask for uh, discriminated unions implemented through um, other mechanisms like overlaying the values inside of a struct or stuff like that, where that the way that you discriminate is not by asking about the type, but through some other potentially more efficient means, efficient either in terms of storage or in terms of just the, the speed of, of um, getting to the value. So, would, yeah. Would discriminated unions make it possible to solve a problem with C-sharp that you can't solve now? Or is it more that it makes it easier to solve a particular type of problem? I think it's some of both. That the exhaustiveness is definitely something that you can't get today. I mean, it doesn't... It's not that you can do new things at runtime, but you can get better compiler checking um, than you can today. If there's a way that you can say, well, there are only these five kinds, well, then on the other side, we can also say, uh, you, haven't, you haven't checked for all five kinds, or you have checked for all five kinds, right? So that's, that's a genuine new expressiveness, at least at the, uh, at the checking level. Um, the other things are more about terseness of syntax and clarity, if you will. The um, if you sort of get into so so just to say we it might be that we do something that helps with exhaustiveness but isn't discriminated unions that could be the the first step maybe towards embracing more of what discriminated unions have to give. Um, also, sometimes discriminated unions, the way that you describe them, there's sort of a, um, there's just a single type declaration, and then there are cases inside of it. So it's sort of a nested thing. And we already have examples of that structure in C Sharp in enums. And enums are kind of cumbersome in a pattern matching uh, context, for instance, in that you have to dot your way to the enum members in every like case through the enum type itself. And so you could also imagine having helper, sort of little helper language features that would let you not have to dot into nested things. And those would then apply not just to enums, but also to discriminated union-like things that are nested. So that's sort of an example of what they ask for. Are they other language constructs that could help them be useful? And now the last part of the question there about option types, for instance. Um, an option type is essentially a discriminated union with two, there are two possible shapes. Either it has a value or it doesn't, you know, the sum or none. 
as the two cases. And the sum has a value inside and the none has nothing inside. It's really an alternative to null, to null in a way. And a lot of people that are like functional programming say, oh, you should never have had null in the language. You should have used, uh, if you had discriminated unions, you could just have option types and then you, would you wouldn't need null. And the answer to that is, well, none sort of is null, <laughs> right? You still have to you still have to check everywhere to um, to see if you have a value or not. But the one thing it does give you is that before you check, you can't you don't can't get at a value, so you can't get null reference exceptions. You don't get none reference exceptions, right? Because you don't you don't get to access what's inside until after you've sort of unpacked it with the pattern match. So it gives you another level of safety there that we can't quite get with null. You know, we get kind of close, but you know, it's not um, it, it's not as as safe. On the other hand, you know, we can do we can do circular data structures, and pure functional language can't. So you win some, you lose some. <laughs> Next question comes from Anton Weislander. He's wondering about the progress on roles and extensions. Yeah, so we would like to do extension everything. We would like to say, well, extension methods, that's just, that's just one thing, but you could also have extension operators and extension properties. It's one that many people ask for, extension static members. Um, and we would really like to, to just generalize that whole um, that whole set of features. Um, one thing that then often comes up is, hey, could I have extension interfaces? Could I be? Could we go one step further and say, I know that class doesn't implement that interface, but hey, if I tell you how I would implement that interface on that class, can you let me? Can you do it for me here? So essentially, an extension that says, well, in my code this type does implement this interface, and here's how. Um, and yeah, we've been noodling on this for a long time, and we're making slow progress because if we want to go all the way and do the thing with interfaces, then that will require pretty extensive work in the runtime, deep in the actual you know, runtime itself. And it's probably it will probably be the most extensive feature implementation we've done in the runtime since since generics. Um, so that's a big mouthful. Um, if we if we leave the interfaces part out and just do extension all the members, then it it can be a lot cheaper. And I think that it's likely that we will we are definitely starting to look at can we do that first. The really difficult thing is doing it first in a way that doesn't, we're using an implementation technique that doesn't exclude doing the full thing later. So it's one of those, like if we if we use compiler tricks too hard, then we back ourselves into a corner in terms of implementation strategy where we can't later say, oh, and now we use the runtime to do the interface part of it. So that's a, that's a dilemma. We have some pretty solid ideas now for how we can do the first part in a way that doesn't exclude the second part. So that might be what we do. We're definitely spending time on it in this release. Whether it'll make it into C Sharp 12, that's, uh, that's doubtful, but not impossible. 
but it depends on depends on how good progress we make over the next like let's say four or five months on it even as a preview um it could end up in in preview i mean it could be that we do what we did with uh with the the numerics and we um we release it in preview in the c 12 time frame i would like to do that but it is not there are too many unknowns for me to call that a plan <laughs> that's a that's a wish at this point Actually, what happens in that scenario? So C Sharp 12 uh, uh, will line up with .NET 8, which is a long-term service. You know, if if uh, if you don't make it for C Sharp 12, it'll be 13, but then you'll be back to the current versions, .NET 9 or whatever it is. Is that something that you have to factor into your kind of your planning for C Sharp releases? Not at all. Okay. Not at all. It doesn't matter. We don't we don't care one bit about whether the .NET release that we're on is is long-term release or not. That that has no impact. We add the features when they're ready. And if it's in a short-term release, well, some people who commit to long-term support only, uh, they will have to wait another year to get it. But that doesn't mean we should hold it another year for everyone. Next question from Mumtaz, Twitter user. What is the planned endgame for null handling in C-sharp? In other words, when are we finally getting rid of null reference exceptions altogether in C-sharp? Also, should we start using warnings as errors in our csproj files? So, <laughs> what is the endgame? I wish I knew. <laughs> we, um, I mean, we did the big push with nullable in C-sharp 8, and that's where that, that was like the big, Dump of uh, of new feature there, um, and that's where we introduced the switches that you could you so that we wouldn't break you. We said you know you have to you can opt in or out of this thing, and then we've been tinkering around the edges ever since. Uh, like I mentioned, the required properties earlier, um, they help with the nullable story, and so on. But there are things that there are ways that. We, I don't think we can ever chase down the last null reference exception <laughs> with this feature. It's a, you know, it's static analysis, but it's in the language. So there's a limit as to how sneaky it can be. Like you can have static analysis tools that are extremely sneaky, but then they become unpredictable, and then they you you can't tell when they give you warnings and when they don't. Like in in a in a language compiler. These warnings have to follow rules. You know, there has to be as they have to be semantics. There has to be rules for when do you get a warning, when don't you? And um, and so with that, I, there are things that we just can't chase down. Think about arrays, for instance. Um, you um, you knew up an array. The element type is a non-nullable reference type. Okay, but the array is going to be full of nulls because what else would it have? That's it is the default value. And we can, can't really start trying to unpack your code and see if you dutifully um, initialize every single element in that array. We could, we could force you to do some things there, but it isn't always really the right thing to do either. Like sometimes you knew up an array and you don't use all the elements, like the, the, uh, the underlying array for, for, a, for a list implementation, for instance. You, even if the element type is non-nullable, you know, 
you you keep track of which of the elements you have something in and which you don't, and you still put null in the other ones, right? So even though there's a null non-nullable reference type as the element type of the list, and all the parts of the array that you know you're using will have non-nullable things in them, you'll you will stick nulls in the rest so that you don't have like dangling references and stuff. So there are these like boundary cases. Structs are another thing where we don't check through structs to see if you are, um, like essentially, you have an array of, you, you knew abstracts, you have the same kind of issues. Uh, so there are just holes. And there will, I think there will always be holes. So it's a best effort kind of thing. And we, we only really make progress unnullable, which we've been talking about for decades, when we accepted the fact that this was a guardrails kind of aid to avoiding as many exceptions as possible while letting you express more of your intent and syntax, you know, great. It's a it's a win-win. You you get more clarity in your in your uh, source code about the intent, and you get and you catch more errors. But it's never going to be it's never going to be waterproof. And um, I haven't really seen. I haven't really seen a system for dealing with null that is waterproof and useful. <laughs> Sorry, all your functional folks, but you know, again, cyclic data structures and null, and you know, how do you, you, you need, you know, it's just hard. <laughs> you need null to be able to be in there for a little while until you have something better to put in sometimes, right? It's certainly if you're doing a cyclical thing, because the thing that you want to point to isn't there yet. It has to be created and point to you first. And so there just has to be something in there for a little while. And that little while, <laughs> you know, is already dangerous. So yeah, that's probably that's so we might be able to like take further little steps and make it a little better. Um, and to your question about should you use warnings as errors for that for nullable warnings? Absolutely. You know, uh, that is a good idea. You can always there are always ways to to shut them up. So um, so that is if if you feel like that is that helps you, absolutely do it. Um, you just don't want to force it on people because it's uh, that's a fairly big hammer. It should be optional. You're getting a lot of pressure from functional language people to include more and more functional stuff into C sharp. Well, yes. But um, there aren't all that many of them, so that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, slightly more than null number. <laughs> yeah. But on the other hand, you know, um, people get a little shocked when I say this, but, you know, history is on the side of functional programming. And I say that as not a functional programming um, kind of uh, fan per se. Uh, it's just that, and this, it, it's just that it is, it is kind of distributed age, in the age of the cloud, and devices, you know. Um, there are definitely scenarios where object-oriented programming doesn't work as well as it has, because object-oriented programming wraps state and functionality together. So the data and the functions working on the data work together, like we talked about before, right? And and with the discriminated unions. And in the functional world, you describe the data 
in a, you know, there's a sacred little description of the shape of the data somewhere central. And then you can have functionality in, you know, distribute all over your code base that is unrelated to each other and everything. The only thing they share is the understanding of the shape of data. Now that much better matches the shape of the internet and the cloud, right? There's data, it's central, it's long lived. It might evolve its shape a little bit. That's a bit of a challenge uh, over time, right? But you have many, many different uses of that data that are not centralizable into virtual methods on the data description itself. So the, the functional approach of doing uh, decentralized functionality just matches that architecture better. And this is this is just one of many ways that functional languages have really good so offer really good solutions for um, object-oriented and imperative languages. Um, we also embrace immutability much more than we have, and so on. And we do that not because we have functional people jumping up and down on our heads saying, "Add this, add that," but because there are real benefits to these ideas. These are really, really good ideas. And we do our best to, you know, honestly steal them while massaging them so they fit into C sharp, uh, you know, feel more like a natural part of the language. This goes all the way back to, I mean, the way we did generics in C sharp two, very inspired by functional languages. Uh, the way we did link in C sharp three, super inspired by functional languages, and we added lambda expressions to support it and everything, right? And all the way up. All the way up to now, functional languages have something to give us, and we just keep taking because <laughs> it's good. And yeah, even if there was even if there was no pressure, it's not because of the pressure that we do it. It's because the the um, of the solutions it offer it offers to to modern programming. I'm going to remind listeners once more: we have made podcasts on C sharp seven, eight, nine, and ten, and we do discuss some of the functional features as they were coming into the languages at each iteration. I'm going to take us to the next question again from Mumtaz. Any future plans to finally make functions first-class citizens in C-sharp as first-class as they are in functional language? Is that even possible? And what are the challenges? Um, I hope it's possible. I, I still dream about this. So so, the, so this is where I said we might get to talk about delegates later, because <laughs> I saw that. This, I remember, yeah, I was I wondering. Saw, I saw that this uh, this question was in the. Uh, uh, I, I saw that on Twitter, um, and um, it's a, it's actually impressive what we've managed to do with functional uh, features in C sharp on top of delegate types, which are an absolutely hideous invention. They should never have existed. And there are, you know, if if I had been there when we did them, that would be the feature that I regretted the most for sure, because they are just the ugliest kind of type on the planet. They have, think about it, they are a combined function type and collection type. Where else do you see that collection type? You say, what, what, how are they a collection type? Well, you can add two delegate values together. And then you get another delegate that calls first the, the first one and then the second one. The collection you can you can just never you know, squish that. them together. It's absurd, and um, and 
I mean, this is all because of the way that we wanted to do uh, events in back in C Sharp one and .NET one. You know, we just you know events were all about the events are a first class language feature as well, based on delegates. Don't get me started. But um, the this it's it's just a hideous thing. And then you have to like in in a in a functional language, function types are not something you declare. They just are. Right? They just they're just uh, just like you instantiate generics and you can get make new types by instantiating generics. Well, there are other type constructors, and one of them is just say this is the function type of taking uh, you know strings and ints and returning bools, and you just say that with a type syntax and it exists. And there is there aren't like three different function types that take those things, and those are incompatible with each other or have runtime cost if you convert from one to the other and, and accidentally wrap and, and, you know, because they're not normal, they're structural types. There's just the one functional type for each like combination of input and output. Whereas we had in C Sharp, you have to declare all your quote unquote function types as delegate types. And, and you have to declare different ones if you want ref parameters and different, ref, but even, even if you declare them the same, they don't match up. You know, you, oh, you declare that one over there and that one over there. And the fact that they look the same, compiler doesn't care, the runtime doesn't care, they, they're not compatible because they really like sort of classes underneath. It's astoundingly primitive and inefficient. And yet we made a lot with it. So I'm as impressed with our, our ability to survive with them as I am with the lack of foresight that they represented in the first place. Um, I would like at some point to open this up and see if we can salvage the function type space to become more structural and less nominal um, and to, uh, you know, to exit the space of functions being, being uh, collections as well. <laughs> I would really love that. But I, I haven't really, haven't really found a good kind of angle on it that was, that seemed viable and worthwhile. Cause you have to remember we have, a whole, we have a whole set of core libraries that are already based on funk and action. And, uh, you know, sometimes even if you can come up with the better language feature, even if it's much better, it's still not worth it because it won't, um, it won't really mesh with all the bulk of code out there, both in our libraries and elsewhere that aren't, that isn't using it, right? It then, you know, what's the point? So. You can hear I'm passionate about it, you know, when you push that button, but um, I'm not optimistic, certainly not in the short term. If you have ideas, you know, I'd love to hear them. Next question, again from Mumtaz. How often does Mads discuss C-sharp design with Anders Heilsberg? Ah, Anders. So um, we meet once a week. Um, at least we're on the calendar once a week. We're busy people, so probably ends up being a couple of times a month. And uh, sometimes we discuss C-sharp design. Sometimes we discuss TypeScript design. You know, Anders uh, and I were both there. Uh, well, Anders was there to create C-sharp. We were both there to create TypeScript. So it's kind of fun to shoot the breeze about the languages we each ended up owning. We also have, like I mentioned, we have the C-sharp design team. And Anders is not on that. He was on that for a couple of years after he went to TypeScript. But, you know, it's just... It's hard to participate deeply in in um, designing two vastly different languages. Um, but what we do have is a, 
a review board, quote unquote, like a, as a set of people who are, um, you, you know, who are deeply familiar and passionate about C sharp that we bring in like three or four times a year and give them, you know, talk, discuss the latest with them in terms of features coming up. And, um, you know, we had a good discussion about uh, parameter null checking with them as, <laughs> in, in spring and so on. And Anders is, is very active in that. So he's one of the, the core participants in that uh, review board. So, so that way the whole design team also gets to talk to Anders about C-sharp design and on, a, on a certain cadence. There was a question, if you could change or deprecate anything in the language, ignoring that it might be a breaking change, what would it be? But I think um, maybe we've covered that or is there something else? <laughs> well, I think um, I think I spent all my... Okay. <sighs> um, <laughs> all my regret energy <laughs> on that one <laughs> for today. Ask right. me on another day and I might have another one. Samula Mohammed asks, does Microsoft have any plans to add cloud programming constructs to C sharp? I mean, that's a, that's a good question because what is a cloud programming construct really? Um, it, there's sort of, it, I mean, I, I sometimes, I get asked this, you know, sometimes, and I don't really have good ideas for what is a real, what is a cloud programming construct? Like once we contemplated doing, we don't do like uh, April 1st jokes anymore at Microsoft because they tend to lead to disasters. So they, they've been banned. But I, we once contemplated doing one where we would just say that C Sharp had added the cloud keyword. <laughs> just, you know, just put thing, just put cloud open curly, close curly, and uh, then they, it'll run in the cloud, you know. But um, <laughs> and it, it was funny until F Sharp actually managed to kind of pull that off. Um, and so F sharp sort of had they have computation expressions and you can there are various ways that you can actually do that. So that was actually pretty impressive. Um, but it's it's hard to kind of say what is the cloud programming feature. And oftentimes the things you need for cloud are at different levels, either library or even in terms of the infrastructure that you deploy, the, the deployment infrastructure and so on. Like you deploy an Azure function, which is you know similar to um, AWS lambdas, if if uh, if you're Brian, um, but um, and and that's a sort of an alternative deployment structure for code, but it doesn't really affect the um, the language features involved. And I sometimes also joke that we did it already. And see, back in C sharp five, we added async, and that was the ultimate cloud programming feature. It was certainly it's not specific to cloud, but it was certainly the feature that made distributed programming tolerable in C sharp and on .NET. It was the one that allowed you to have lag and to compose um, things that were running com concurrently at a distance and so on in a, in a sane manner in the language. So async really opened that up. And, and I think that is sort of witnessed by the, it's probably the most viral language feature we've added in C sharp in terms of uptake in other languages. Like, um, after we added async, um, it's just been sort of spreading to uh, popular and less popular languages, and in various you know permutations ever since. Because you just need something like that for any sort of uh, distributed programming, cloud programming included. And so that was really like probably the biggest cloud feature we'll ever do, um, even though we might not have completely known it at the time. 
and uh, th there might be other things, but um, it's the problem here is kind of like with concurrency, is that if you if you add features into the language, then you tend to get too opinionated. And we don't want C Sharp to be too opinionated about this. It, it'll be like, do it this way, you know, do actor based or something like that. You, you, and that's great if if you don't, if you're like, a, if that's what you're about as a programming language. But we kind of have to remember to be general purpose and allow multiple different m approaches here to be non denominational, so to speak. And um, uh, on this particular faith issue. And so I think it's more likely that a lot of what will happen here will happen outside of the language. I could be wrong, though. It's interesting you bring up async, because when we were talking about C Sharp a very long time ago, I think it was C Sharp 7, I was asking you about async, and I was expressing some um, mild unhappiness with the syntax. Yeah, but actually, then... I still have, I'm I'm still hurting from that. That was, that was, uh, <laughs> <Yes. laughs> You rough. did bring it up the first time we met in person. <laughs> <laughs> but when I started doing some stuff in Node, I was sort of, oh, C Sharp is much better. And then as Node evolved, it became more and more like C Sharp. I'm sort of, okay, fine. It's, it's, it's good. I'm, I'm, I'm over it now. Good. good. Yeah. <laughs> um, sometimes, you know, it just takes a little while for it to click. And that, I think that, I mean, the thing about something like async is that it is, you know, it is complex. It, you know, it's it's a lot easier than having, you know, just signing up callbacks or whatever strategy people were using before that. Um, but it's still there's some we when we build async, we talked a lot about accidental complexity versus inherent complexity. Yeah, accidental complexity is where something is harder than it should be. And the world before async was harder than it should be. And what we tried with async was to to Pair it back down to the inherent complexity. You know, there's just some when you're working in an async world, there's just some things that are harder. You know, there are things that can happen at the same time in a different way, and you just there are more there are things that you have to worry about that you don't have to worry about in straight up synchronous code. Um, probably, you know, it's been a long time. What's well, been 14 years or something since since async? Ah, maybe less. 12, 10, something like that. But it's, you know, there are probably ways that we would do it differently. We were very bound by a lot of um, compatibility uh, requirements as well when we did it. And so there are probably, there's probably some accidental complexity in there still that if we did it today, it could be simpler still. But uh, by and large, it was like, um, it was an order of magnitude of simplicity that we gained from that. And it, it was really the thing that enabled us to be a, a first class uh, player in the in the cloud and devices age. I'll move us on. Chris Martinez is asking about where the evolutionary ideas and influences come from. He mentions community and proposals, but he's wondering if there are others and then he sees similarities in recent C sharp versions that look like things that are in Kotlin or Rust. Yeah, so I think that we are uh, we do look a lot at other languages as well, and you've heard me talk a lot about functional languages. Um, we have F sharp um, right there next to us on on .NET um, as an example of a functional programming language, and, uh, and it again has a 
long history in the ML uh, family of languages and um, so on. Um, we also, I think, are part of a, we're trying to be part of a trend where programming languages are better and better at getting rid of, again, I guess, accidental complexity or accidental uh, overhead or boilerplate, if you will. Um, so C sharp, uh, classic C sharp, if you look at C sharp 1.0 today, it is fairly bulky. You know, there it um, there's a lot of syntactical clunkiness, and we've tried for many years to reduce that where it isn't necessary. Uh, we, again, without changing the fundamental feel of the language, we've tried to pare down a lot of that. Like you've seen that both with you know with things like expression bodied members, with things like top level statements and so on, where we just try to uh, take the language in a more, uh, in a way that is terser without being more cryptic, but on, but not by, by creating, you know, um, more gnarly, more simple laden syntax, but by taking away stuff that you don't need. So that's, and that is uh, definitely a trend that we share with newer languages and also older languages trying to rejuvenate themselves. So uh that i think a lot of the similarity you see there is is in that direction we don't um we don't stare particularly hard at either of the two languages you you mentioned um but i know that kotlin is also very i know that their philosophy is also very much in in the direction of quote unquote uh, ergonomics not so much like just keyboard ergonomics but the um you know, being able to express things elegantly and 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 uh, with a simple, nice flow of syntax. I know that is one of their big kind of focus areas. Rust is more. Rust is harder for us to have to get much from uh, because their um, their lifetime analysis. We we do get. I mean, we look at them for some of the like low level ref oriented stuff and lifetime analysis and so on, but syntactically. Um, I, I think that's a little less um, inspiration back and forth there. The next question comes from John Skeet. He's Ooh. wondering how the C-Sharp team balances the needs of developers across the experience spectrum when designing features. How do they think about keeping the language manageable for newcomers and enough of a Swiss army knife for folks who want complete control? Well, it's uh it's a difficult problem the definitely the i mean as part of what we just talked about the trend towards more simplicity um when we give you newer simpler ways of writing the same c sharp so to speak well the old ways are still there <laughs> so in a way um you know also reaching back to one of the earlier questions if we could sort of we could you could sort of look at what is the c sharp we would keep today if there was if we wanted to keep only one way to do everything, <laughs> and um, it would be somewhat smaller than what is there today. But also, and I think that is more what John is getting at. Some features are like very inviting and simple, and some features are aimed at expert programmers trying to get like systems programming level or near systems programming level performance with C sharp, working at at a lower level, and um, the way that we try to balance that is to just 
you know, we just lean into both. Well, if we do this stuff, they can build a faster, you know, they, they can make something in ASP.NET run faster in the core of ASP.NET, excellent. Or we can replace all this unsafe code with, with safe code that's just as fast. That's on the one end of the spectrum. And at the other end of the spectrum, you know, we try to then make easy things even easier and hard things easier. You know, just try to make the language more appealing and easier to get to approach as a newcomer um, or as a casual user. So um, we just try to, every release has some of both. In, you know, when you ask me to list out the features in this release, you will hear me talk more about the make it easier kind of features and less about the low level, um, you know, the refs, ref fields and ref structs that we added this time. You didn't hear me mention that. But um, it sort of targets the other thing. But we, where we, in general, we try to add features that, we try to stick to features that are good for all C-sharp programmers. But we do make an exception when it comes to lower levels because they are, most people won't use those features, but they're still good for everyone in that they improve the performance of the stack that you're probably um, targeting. One final question. This comes from your mm -hmm. colleague, Jared Parsons, the lead on the C-Sharp compiler team. He is asking how MADS approaches managing the C-Sharp language design meetings. There are so many vibrant personalities in that room, many of us who are very invested in certain features getting implemented, all of us with strong opinions, yet year after year, MADS keeps the room happy, focuses on the themes for a release, and iterates until we have everything nailed down. It's a real special form of leadership he has. Oh, it's a good thing you can't see me out there because I'm blushing pretty hard right now. Oh, thank you, Jared. <laughs> what was the question? Oh, uh, how I approach it. <laughs> yes. Well, okay. Uh, so... I learned a lot from Anders here, actually. Like, it probably, I learned probably more about running a design process than about actual language design from him, although a lot of both, right? But Anders is absolutely brilliant. He's just so smart and has so much insight and so much intuition. But he approached language design. Right? Back when I joined Microsoft, he was running design meetings. You're like, he could just sit down and, and invent a language on his own. What does he need all these comparatively junior people for in the room? But he realized that great design is a, is a social process. You, creativity, uh, innovation, it's a social process. And you need to have a team of people to, to bat thing around. They have things around. I mean, they have to be capable and, and smart and, uh, but but they also have to um, they also have to be diverse. They have to bring in different viewpoints and different perspectives. So you will try to like not just have the whole compiler team sit there, but some from the compiler team, some from the IDE team, and some from elsewhere. And, um, and they also want they also need to feel safe. Uh, they need to feel that they're in there together working on the same thing. You need to make sure that it's not a committee, but a team, right? So there were rules in place way back then for, there were design notes all the way back then. They weren't public back then, but they are there. I, I have them. 
um, <laughs> and on my OneDrive. But um, you would not ever mention names in the in the notes, for instance, and we still don't. Like nobody who's in the meeting gets called out by name. Like this person said this, this person said that. So you're like free to say quote unquote stupid things. You're free to to brainstorm. If you take things down a rabbit hole, uh, nobody's gonna look at it after and say, oh, this Mads guy, he always like, you know, and, and nobody's gonna be checking that you are doing, that you're in there fighting for your team's interests in the language design committee or something, right? It's, it's, it's safe and it's anonymous and you're, and you're part of a creative process. You're bringing your own self, your own perspective. And I really tried to hold on to that, into try to bring it into the open source age um, by finding the ways that we could open up and the ways that we shouldn't open up. So the design notes are now public, but they're still not by name. And there are no recordings publicly as well. So people still, it, it contributes to that feeling of being free and safe to be awesome together in there, to be different. Uh, I think that is, I just took all of that and ran with it. Like I learned it all from Anders. And, and I'm, I try to be, I'm, I'm amazingly humble. You know, I try, <laughs> I try to be, I, I try to be humble and not lead the witness in there and try to um, really create a situation where everyone's contribution is in fact valued and taken seriously. Everybody gets to speak. You know, these teams days, we use the raise hand feature religiously so that nobody speaks over anyone else. And if they do, they get called out. You know, and everybody, everybody's voice is valued in there. You're, if you're there, it's because we value your voice. So you wouldn't have been invited in the first place. So you can speak up with confidence and we'll create the space for you to do so. I think that's, that's really it. And then the meeting all the goals and you know, cr doing great design, uh, getting people aligned and so on outside of the design team, that almost all falls out from that. If you, the design team agrees, then nine times out of 10, the thing is so good and so many people are already bought in from different organizations that it 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 becomes much easier sailing from there. There's still work to be done, there's still resources to be spent and so on, but the decisions usually stick both with the team itself because everyone has, you know, everyone's bought in to the outcome, but also with the uh, folks around because it's sort of been through the test and through the, um, the scrutiny that the team, the design team provides. So along with all that, I think, you know, on a personal note, I see you as someone who gives your time to me and others. So we've been making these podcasts uh, five years in a row. And not only this, also you've given your time on the podcast about ADHD. And I know you present at conferences. So, you know, you, you don't, you don't just, you know, control a room like that and give back there. You're giving back to the whole community. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Well, I think on that note, uh, we'll call it a wrap for uh, C Sharp 11, and we'll see you for C Sharp 12. I guess, if we can wait that long. <laughs> Thanks again for having me. These are always awesome. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much again for your time, Mads Ferguson. If you like this episode with Mads, check out my other episodes with him. There's a link in the show notes. Or check out episodes 163 and 164 with Jared Parsons about the C Sharp compiler. And in a few months' time, I'll have an episode with Andy Goki about AOT. 
The opening music was a return by Nisi23 from the album 11 and 12, and the closing music was Av Tara by Stephen Seibert from the album Samsara. <laughs> 